Hi, everybody. My name's Fran, and I am an alcoholic. I'm a member of the Hopeful Group. That's a Friday night speakers group. And I'm working in my eighth year of sobriety. Special welcome to Mike and Tim and Tony tonight. We're glad to see you here. You guys keep coming back. You know, I learned the darndest things at these Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Tonight I learned something I never knew before. I finally know what chicken cordon blue is. <laughs> I went to a noon meeting today up to the spirit group, and about 20 minutes after the meeting started, I have what I consider a privilege. A man came in through the double doors. He was really drunk. He was out on his feet, and he came and sat about two chairs to the left of me. And about two minutes after he sat down, his head went down, his eyes closed, and he was out. And I looked at him, and I saw me, because that's exactly the way I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. By the time I got here, I had gotten myself into such a hopeless, such a helpless, uh, such a despairing situation. The four horsemen were riding over yonder all over me, and... Uh, I came into Alcoholics after sitting in the parking lot at Park Place for about four days. I'd been on a ten-week drunk. I was drunk as much as I could stay, morning, night, afternoon. And only through the grace of God I had a moment of clarity while I was drunk, and I can't explain that. But I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt if I didn't come through the door then, I would never get through the door. I was a millimeter from the street and a millimeter from death. And it became obvious to me. And I didn't get here till I was 60 years old, so it was a long route. And, uh, you know, I don't really remember my first drink, but I, I remember at age 16, I was working in a factory uh, in the summertime running a turret lathe, and uh, I played baseball for an industrial uh, factory league. And at that time, the guys I played with were all married guys with little kids, and uh, we played our games on Friday night. And they asked me if I'd drive them around while they party-timed. And party time at that time for them was hitting all the bars on the south side of my town, all the shot and beer joints. And so, boy, I thought I was pretty important because I drove them around from bar to bar. They'd make about 12 on Friday night. And the second time I took them on that route, they began to pat me on the back and tell me what a wonderful job I was doing. And they began to pass cold beers up in the front seat. And I really can remember this in detail. I'd light a cigarette and I'd kind of relax back in the seat. I was in love. I'd turn the radio on. And I sucked those cold beers. And I don't try to describe it because the big book describes it so much better than I can. That sense of ease and comfort that comes at once. And I didn't know at that time I'd probably chase that another 30, 40 years plus. But that's the feeling I had. And it felt so good I went back with a friend of mine. We retraced those bars. And when I was 16, I had three bars in my city that welcomed me when I came in. And it wasn't long when they, before they'd say, hey, friend, glad to see you and set it up. Uh, at the same time, I, I was uh, just where I came from. I, uh, my, my parents were German, uh, blue-collar, uh, uh, a long way from being wealthy. I always had enough to eat, and I always had a good place to sleep. And, uh, but I was a planner. Uh, my brother left home to be a priest when he was 14, and I thought he was out of his damn mind. Uh, my sister wasn't dating. I thought she might be on the edge. And uh, I didn't really think much of, much of my parents. I mean, they were boring as hell. There was never anybody at the house. All they did was work. So I made up my mind it wasn't going to be that way for me. And I was a goal setter. And at 17, I knew exactly what I wanted to do in the order I wanted to do it, how I was going to accomplish it. I knew how many kids I wanted, six kids. I wanted a brick house. I wanted a German shepherd. 
and three fireplaces, and I had everything figured out at 17. So I, I did good in high school, and I only bring this up for one reason, because it's my first recollection of something that was to dog me all my life. And I'm talking a little bit beyond fear. I'm talking about terror. I'd done well enough, so they asked me to talk to the parents assembled in the gym. And I was I was so screwed up. I was so terrified at that time. And I, I just... That's the first time I remember being gripped by fear. And defiance was something that lived with me all my life. I went to the principal, looked him in the eye, and said, I will not. And I didn't do it. And uh, that graduation night, I excused myself, uh, and I went to one of those nice places where I, where I was more welcome. And uh, so anyway, I went off to school and... Uh, did in the first couple of years, uh, you know, nothing too, too eventful happened. I found a little neighborhood bar. I was drinking Christian Brother and Brandy by then and chasing it with beer. I do that on a nightly basis, but I was packing groceries and keeping busy and going to school. And then I finally, I was trying to get in graduate school, and I got in graduate school. And when that happened, everything kind of busted loose. I ended up in the fraternity house right away. And I was introduced to... Uh, uh, oh, the college hangout up there, and it was, uh, I'd, I'd always drink by myself with them. When I opened the doors of this place, it was a blast. I mean, it was just all hell was breaking loose, and, and I thought I was a loner, but I dug it, and I really got in there and pitched, and uh, that was Friday night, fight night, and all the rest of this. The guy that owned the place was an Irishman, nothing against the Irish, AA is 100% Irish as far as I can tell, but at any rate, this guy was, had an Irish accent, Patty, and uh, I ended up with uh, Doyle, Brian, Ovetsker, uh, three Irishmen and me. And so at that time, my day was school 40 hours a day. I drove a truck for the phone company four hours at night. Uh, I did that for a while, and uh, there was always a money problem. So then I went to work in Milwaukee County Hospital and, and uh, did uh, three eight-hour shifts a week uh, in the uh, criminally insane ward, which I thought I probably belonged in by that time. But anyway, uh, it was a question of uh, working hard and drinking hard and playing hard, and, and that went on. And uh, finally, I ended up in uh, getting a job at the Pabst Brewery between, after my junior year in college. And I worked there four months, and they'd been on strike. So it was a question of uh, working 13 out of 14 days, 12 hours a day. And uh, when I got there, they kidded me. I was the only kid there. They'd say, hey, college kid. And the older guys... Uh, they'd been there 20, 30 years, and they had big bellies. They looked like Wallace Berry to me, really. And these guys were the guys who were going to teach me how to drink. You know, they gave me these copper beer mugs, and, and you had to set those into warm water for a certain amount of time. And everything had to be done just right. And it wasn't long before I'd go there early, leave late. We had a beer break in the middle, and then we'd eat, drink our lunch and have a beer break. And I was plastered for four months. I finally figured that out, you know. I remember I woke up one night. I didn't know what was going on. I woke up on the... Uh, cement slab going up to the graduate school I woke up and the sun was coming up and the only thought I had was if these people find out I'm laying here man you know I'm cooked this this seems over with and my favorite bar up there was down in Milwaukee it was down in the gully by the railroad tracks it was called the blind pig <laughs> and I remember it so well because I lost half my clothes in there I know we had a uh, uh, my parents had worked hard and bought me an overcoat and I you know I owned it for one day but it was it was crazy and uh, anyway, I got into different different problems here and there. But uh, finally, at the end of my third year in school, I was everything was going so bad. I was so screwed up uh, that I quit drinking. And uh, so I, 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 I quit drinking. And I didn't drink for the last year and did what I had to do to get out. I'd screwed up high school graduation, so I didn't want to uh, follow up. Uh, my graduation then because it was important for my parents nobody in the family had ever gone through school and by that time my brother was out he had just been ordained a Catholic priest and they were coming up 
the, the, for the graduation. The next morning, they'd schedule a family breakfast and a 7 o'clock mass, and, and that's the way it was going to be. And that night after graduation, Pat, the guy that owned the bar that I practically live in, came to our graduation. And Doyle Donahue and Metzger and O'Brien, same four guys, same bartender, he took us down to a place on Lake Michigan, some kind of a nightclub. And uh, we went down there, and boy, we'd gotten out of the place, and we started celebrating. Even the local people that we ran into were, you know, we were, they were buying us drinks, and we were raising hell. And uh, what happened that night was repeated so many times uh, during the first, second, third year that I drank there. Uh, at one one thirty at that time, they'd come around, they'd lock the front door, and the blinds would come down, and the bar would close. But the five of us would stay. And that went on. They'd put a candle on the back booth. The Jackie Daniels come out. Pictures of beer would come out. And the one thing that I can remember, I see it sometimes in my sleep. You know, I can see that uh, Milwaukee cop at the front door wiggling the knob. And I can see a silhouette there with his nightstick sticking out. And uh, all I can remember that night is uh, really nothing. And the next morning, I remember peeking through these blinds. You know, I looked over Lake Michigan and I saw the sun coming up. And I remember mumbling something to the guy next to me, you know, I'm supposed to be someplace. I'm supposed to be someplace. I I never did see my folks or anybody again. Uh, They they went back. And so I screwed up the second. And it just, underneath the booze was a kind of a twisted, uh, uh, self-centered, scared, uh, defiant personality underneath the booze. And I guess that's one of the reasons I like to drink, because all that stuff sort of disappeared for me. So then anyway, I went off to the service and... uh, pretty easy to summarize that. It was a catastrophe, and uh, it's not a good place to be if you're a defiant guy. But uh, I was in the service a few weeks, and uh, I ended up over in uh, French Morocco, and uh, uh, the first night I uh, met a guy that I graduated with, and he had told me about some strange things he'd seen around and wanted me to go with him, and I did. And my next recollection was at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd lost my shirt somewhere, uh, I actually was supposed to be an officer. I didn't even know what that was. but And I, my shoes were gone. I, I had my pants on, but I didn't have any, any shoes or stockings or shirt on. And, uh, and the APs came along and grabbed me, and they, they arrested me, and they threw me in the back of a Jeep. So I got my first dress down the next day. And the service was not a happy place for me. And uh, so a couple of years went by, and I ended up, uh, I ended up uh, in Turkey. And... Uh, uh, I didn't do much in the service but goof off and drink, and uh, so eventually I got up in the morning, and uh, when I looked in the mirror, my eyes were, were turning yellow, and the uh, tip of my ears were getting yellow, and I was so bright I knew something was wrong. So, But anyway, I was very backed uh, out of there and ended up in the hospital for nine weeks, and there were some liver problems and other things going on, and, and I can remember there was a medical team of three people there, and they took me aside, and and, you know, I'd told me that uh, no way do you touch alcohol for a year until you get reevaluated, but you've been here nine weeks now, and uh, you're, you know, you're strong enough to have six hours off. So they gave me a six-hour break. And I went to the officer's club and got bombed. You know, I thought about that, and I thought about that. And I remember I was talking to Boston Frank about that one time. And he said to me, what the hell do you think alcoholics do, you know? And uh, I didn't understand that. But I got, when I rotated back home, I had met a gal in college my last year. She was a terrific woman. Her name was Mickey. She was physically beautiful, and she was beautiful on the inside. And uh, so we were going to get married. Uh, she was going to come down to the base, and I had gotten an apartment. And so my best thinking told me that I, I really, 
thought I had one last little flame before I got married because I knew I was going to get responsible overnight. And uh, so one Friday night, I loaded the trunk of my car up for a weekend, a real rip roaring party. I picked up a friend and went to that apartment. And I'd had a whole series of blackouts starting a long time ago. But this Friday night in particular, that black shade came down. Till today, I have no recollection of what went on. But I do know that uh, I was supposed to be at the base at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. I never saw that person again. And uh, somewhere in the middle of that Monday, I think around noon or 1 o'clock, two big guys uh, broke the front door down and came in, and, uh, and they had the AP uniforms on. They picked me up like a sack of potato and threw me into what I thought was a blue pickup truck, and I found out later it was an ambulance. And uh, anyway, I ended up in the hospital with five days and an IV in either arm. I didn't know at that time, and I didn't know until I got here that, uh, you know, I was I was being detoxed, and I had no idea what the hell they were doing to me. But I figured I was insubordinate, and I hated the bird colonel that was my boss, and I figured this was a very personal deal, and, you know, it would pass like everything else. And at that time, I was, I was 25 years old. I weighed about, I think, 147, and uh, I could have used Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't, never heard of it and didn't know what it was. But anyway, uh, I got out of the service in one piece with an okay discharge. And uh, when I went back home, uh, it was time to get married and settle down and start a business. And that's what I did. Uh, and the other thing is I, I have been a workaholic all my life. And, and, uh, and so uh, we got married, and, and uh, time has a way of passing by. And it wasn't long when I had six beautiful children. I had, uh, that's exactly what I wanted. That's exactly what I planned for. I, I, I. Three boys and three girls. Uh, we worked like the Dickens, and uh, things went along well, and I had gone through a series of three houses. I ended up in a brick home. I ended up in a brick home with three fireplaces and three bathrooms. Nice backyard. I had my German Shepherd. Uh, every dream I ever had at 17 was fulfilled at that time. And... Uh, the only thing wrong with that whole scene was that uh, I had started after work, and I'd go with a friend of mine. We'd have just two drinks, just two, two double Manhattans or martinis at that time, I guess. Then when I'd get home, of course, I'd tell my wife it was a rough day, and we'd have just two, two doubles, and there was still martinis at that time. But as the time went by, that began to multiply and double. And, you know, I can still remember uh, six kids and little jammies running around, and they were... They were trained pretty well, you know, and they used to come out to the kitchen table because I made all my big decisions at the round kitchen table that seat, uh, seated eight people. And I made all my big decisions with a bottle in the middle of the table. Everyone. Bought a house, bought a car, I don't care what decision it was. And I can remember one little kid saying to the other, shh, leave daddy alone. He's obviously making a big decision. My head was probably... <laughs> and it was, you know, it was crazy. And that was the one factor that ran all the way through there. 1972, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. I had no spiritual tools. She had no spiritual tools. Everything changed at once. Our relationship changed. She was a tremendous woman. Uh, I began to drink a lot more. She went for medical help and uh, ended up with uh, Valium deficiency treatment and a whole lot of other things. And not too many years went by when she uh, passed away. And I, I remember the next day I got the six kids in the room. And I always had good intentions. I know I always had good intentions. And I told those kids I'd be there for them. Uh, I didn't want them to suffer from the same things I did, financial, emotional insecurity. Three weeks later, I ended up drunk. I ended up at O'Hare. I woke up down in the Bonaire in St. Peach Beach. 
I started a series of decisions that were out of mind. I bought a condominium. The girl that sold it to me didn't look too bad to me, so I ended up marrying her about two months later. She was an untreated uh, manic depressive. I was an active alcoholic. Uh, It laid the groundwork for a fabulous, neat marriage. Uh, I took her back home and introduced to my children. My children hated her. They hated me. I hated them. We had a fabulous thing going. And as I continued to drink, it got worse, and I made another series of dumb decisions. Every time I think of the third step, now I turn my life and my will over to a wonderful lady. I was crazier in hell, you know. And she said, I need a motorhome. I said, okay. <laughs> it was 34 feet long. I had it about two months. She said, it wasn't big enough. I said, okay. So I ended up with a Greyhound bus in my driveway. And uh, But it worked out really well for me because she grabbed everything she could, picked up everything. We were married about nine months. We'd done nothing but fight since the first day. She took everything she owned, put it in the bus, and went to California. And uh, so I thought this was very successful. And uh, anyway, she came back 10 or 11 months later. She said, you're my fourth or fifth husband, I can't remember. They were all drunks, and so are you. You will go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, no shit. So when I hesitated in front of that meeting all the steps up, she took me by the earlobe, and that's the way I came in. She was pulling and tugging. And I, and I, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I said, well... I went to, I never forget the first meeting, Boy Scout emblems on the wall. I sat next to a guy with black boots on and leathers and Jesus, Mary and Joseph. I thought, what the hell is going on here? But at any rate, I did make a commitment that I'd go for four months and I'd go three times a week. And I carried that commitment out. And at the end of that conclusion, three old timers came up to me. I never did say I was an alcoholic. I wasn't an alcoholic. Why would I say it? And three old timers come up to me and they said, it looks to us like you need to try some control drinking. We'd like to have you go out and drink three bottles of beer every night for 30 days and come back and talk to us. And I gave him the finger, and I won't repeat what I said to him. But I didn't drink from the first day. I didn't drink for three and a half years. My life was hell. I had no program. I had no tools. It's the worst time of my life. It was almost worse than I was drinking to that point. And after three and a half years, I dressed up. I remember going to work that day. I made a decision to drink. I think I had a drink to stay alive at that time. And at any rate, I came back. I went in and uh, I ordered a double Manhattan. The blackout came. The next two years were hell on wheels. I couldn't make it. There's no use going into details. I filed divorce about four or five times, and anyway, I ended up down in Florida. I was here about two days. I picked up a drink, and I couldn't put it down for a period of ten weeks. About a week before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I went to a Bruce Reed seminar because a lady bartender could watch me on a daily basis. And I decided to listen to her, and I went there, and I listened to a guy for an hour, and the only thing I remember is, he said, there's nothing more tragic than you go to your grave without knowing who you are. And I wanted to ask him a lot of intelligent questions, but I said, are you a recovering alcoholic? He said, yes, and he gave me a a where and when for Park Place. I came into Park Place four days later after being drunk in the parking lot all day long, and that's when the magic started for me. And I'm not the miracle, but the program is a miracle. And I staggered in there totally drunk, fell over a chair, a chair and ended up on the floor. Three guys took care of me. It was on a Saturday. They fed me coffee for about six, seven hours till they could talk to me. And you hear it around the rooms. What they actually said to me was, you don't have to live like this anymore. You never have to be alone again. And I'm telling you guys, it was news to me. I didn't believe that then. I thought I was finished. And... Uh, so after they uh, kept me and they went to a meeting, I remember nothing. Some guy with a big boot kicked the bottom of my chair. I jumped up. Everybody cheered. 
And they hollered and clapped, you know, and I ended up with a white chip. And I don't know what happened. I found it the next day. But that's very true. And then finally somebody hauled me away somewhere, and I ended up with two guys, the typical 12-step call, and they stayed with me till the early morning. The second day, uh, a fellow I'd met asked me if I wanted to go to Tampa. I went over to Tampa and saw John. John was in the hospital. He was a guy that had my story. He opened up a propane can on this side of the Howard Franklin. He lit a match on the other side. John was 95% burned over his body. He died a few days later. And I went to my first meeting that was in the central office at that time. There was an Afro-American leading the meeting. I could tell the way he talked that he was educated. Uh, he looked good. He had a nice short sleep. I could still see him. His name was Corey. And so afterward, I asked him if I could talk to him. We talked for about an hour and a half. Ten days later, he was dead. He picked up a drink and went to a needle, and he was dead. So in the beginning, I was given the gift of not only desperation, but really, really understanding the fatality of the disease of alcoholism. And on the fourth day, I asked him what to do, and they told me to get a sponsor. And I asked a couple guys, and the same name came up. I decided to give up interviewing, and anyway, I got a sponsor. I have that same sponsor today, and uh, we talked, and, and uh, you know, he told me for the first 90 days you're going to have to get used to looking at the world through eyes that aren't drinking, and, uh, and uh, I got in contact with I heard a man say that he crawled in his sponsor's back pocket, and when I asked him what that was, he said he talked to him every day and so I talked to my sponsor every single day and most days I ended up sitting on his back porch and if it wasn't for his compassion and he stuck me hard he stuck me hard many times and I'm grateful for it but at any rate for the first 90 days that's about all I did on the 13th day they had the Tampa Florida convention I went over there and by the grace of God I ran into Joe and Charlie in the big book tapes and I began to work on them and I talked to Charlie a little bit I came back on the 14th day and at that time my ex-wife got a hold of me, and she said, you have a decision to make. And I said, what's that? She said, it's me or AA. And I said, thank you for making it so simple. And uh, I tell you, I was terrified. You know, I had to call my sponsor. I said, how do you boil water? You know, how do you, what kind of oven should I buy? I didn't know one damn thing, and I was 60 years old. And uh, so I went out and got this uh, little room, and, and uh, I moved into that little room. And, and, uh, and I went to just short of 300 meetings that first 90 days. And uh, my sponsor gave me actions immediately. He said, you're to walk up to the chairman, shake his hand whether you like it or not. He said, you walk up to the guy that's speaking, and if he pisses you off, that's good. Go up and shake his hand and thank him. And he started to give me a series of actions to do. And at 90 days, I remember, and I, and I can't forget to tell you, at about 10 days, he put this pin on me this round and said, yeah, but. <laughs> he said, you wear this pin to every, every single AA meeting you go to, because this will get you to know people and they'll talk. Boy, I said to him afterwards, USOB. I said, these guys, when, he said, one guy called on me and he said to me, hey, yeah, but what do you have to say? <laughs> and I mean, it was embarrassing as hell, and it was just exactly what I needed. And, and uh, one day I was trying to go to a meeting and I forgot the pin. I was so damn sick, I went back to my apartment. I couldn't go to a meeting without the pin. <laughs> so this is the way it is. But at any rate, in 90 days, my sponsor took me aside and I said, I'm sober. I hadn't had a drink for 90 days. And I said, uh, I said, my God, I said, uh, what do I do now? And he said, is the program, he said, the program's working for you. You have a drink. He laid the program of alcoholics exactly the way it's outlined in the big book, Alcoholics on She laid it right on a map. And he said, you now will join a uh, home group. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. You'll commit yourself to a step meeting once a week. Those two meetings you will attend unless there's a funeral. 
If it is, it better be yours. That's the way it was given to me. And I went to a newcomer's meeting, and they cried, and I cried at the meeting, and I cried, and uh, went through all the things that you go through. But I did exactly, you know, what he told me to do. And uh, somehow or other, when I was sober eight weeks, my last fling, and my last fling, uh, I, I went into a, a, a mental, I went into such depression because I didn't think the program would work for me. And I had to drive over and call the guy that 12-stepped me, and I went to his house and spent about 12 hours there. I mention this for the newcomers because I was tested with the sobriety at eight weeks, really tested. I'm talking about the obsession that overcomes all other obsessions. And luckily, I made a phone call through the grace of God. And on uh, my fourth month, my sponsor and I were down on the beach, and, and, his, and the lady said to me, How long has it been since you've wanted to drink? And I said, my God, it was gone, you know. One of my daughters, all my kids had been alienated from anywhere from zero years to 15 by that time. One of my daughters called me. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of things happened at once. And somewhere around five months, a guy with 40-some years served me a cup of coffee. He served it with the exact amount of cream and sugar that I drank. And I didn't think too much about it until I got home that day. And then I thought he must have been, look, he must have been watching me. And the terrible truth came to me that day, and I mean this honestly. I sat home, and the realization came to me that I did not know how to love anybody. And worse than that, I had no idea how to accept love. And the truth began to leak out a little bit. My, one of my daughters called me and said, Is there anything we can do about a relationship? When she came down at four months, we talked. Uh, she's a nice-looking chick, and she was out one night, and a guy took a pass at her, and she turned him down. The same guy showed up 11 months later. He had 10 months in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were in allied professions. He did 11, he had the ninth step with her in such a fashion that they became friends. And when she went to his house, his wife took her to an Al-Anon meeting. And he explained to her the disease of alcoholism. She got a sponsor, got in the steps, and that's the reason she called me. It had nothing to do with me. And those kind of things began to happen. And Jimmy F., who was uh, one of the guys that 12-stepped me, his wife died, and it tore my guts out. And uh, when I went there, uh, I had asked uh, Jimmy to speak because uh, I, was, I was chairing at the speaker's group I belonged to. And uh, we walked down that long aisle in the church hand-in-hand. Hand. His wife was up front in the coffin. And we held hands, and there was nobody else in the church. And, uh, you know, I was all tore up. I couldn't ask him about the commitment. That was so... And anyway, he took all the pressure off me. And he said to me, Fran, this is when we carry the message, when it's toughest of all. And he said, I just want you to know I'll be there to speak for you. Just tore my guts out, the example that's gone on in the program. One of my friends from down from Newton, this is another guy, 30-some years sobriety. I heard him share, and I got... And it was, so, so, it was so from the big book, and it was so from the gut and heart, I went up and asked him for his telephone number. Before the day was out, we had exchanged phone calls and so forth and so forth. And he was down by himself, and he didn't know anybody, and we got talking. One night, he totaled his car on, uh, on East Bay, and he called me on a Saturday night. I think I had three years sobriety at the time. I couldn't vision a person calling me with 30 years sobriety. You know. <laughs> that would they call me for? I don't, you know, I don't even know what day it is. And he said, I don't want to be alone tonight, Fran. Would it be okay if I came over to your apartment? And this guy has really taught me how to ask for help in the program. He came over that night. We talked to AA with he and I and my wife. And, uh, and I can't forget the other, the things that have happened to me have been so awesome in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And down the line, my, uh, my life crossed my high school sweetheart. 
40 years. I'd gone my way, had six children, and did my life. She'd gone her way and had seven. I didn't know she was an Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know anything about it, but, and this may sound corny, but we fell in love with the AA way. We got to know each other. We had some contacts. We exchanged some cards. Forty years later, our paths crossed. We've been married about six years now. It's just unbelievable what goes on in this program. God does for you, and he does for me what he can't do for myself. I'm very, very grateful. And no matter where I am in this program, my mind always drifts back to all of those nights in the beginning where I'd sit with a big book, and I still do. I've come to believe that everything I need to know is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if it's not in there, I don't need to know. And the 12 and 12 has become so strong for me in the last couple of years. And one night I was sitting there and I was going through the uh, chapter to the agnostic and, and the words just jumped right out of the book at me. You know, if I could only think honestly and search diligently that he might come and he can be found only down deep inside and there only can he be found. And the power that's come to me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous I simply call my God. And I am most grateful to people like you and rooms like these and to him for everything that has been given to me, for all that has been taken away, but mostly and most especially for what I have left. Thank you.